Hello, everybody. All right, it's uh, Friday, May 25th, uh, Block Height Unknown. And uh, today we're kind of just going to have a little more of a freeform discussion uh, about Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash. Uh, we've got Mr. Chris Pasilla, the, the lead backend dev from Open Bazaar, as a guest today. You want to say hi to everybody, Chris? Hello. Thanks for having me, guys. And we've also got Miss Naomi Brockwell, uh, a very influential and familiar face, I'm hoping, to everybody out there. Hi. And as well, we got the usual lineup, Mr. Rick. Hey, everybody. How are y'all doing today? JW. Hey, guys. Janine from Parts Unknown. Guten Tag. <laughs> no para. Ni hao, tajaha. <laughs> and um, Acnix just dropped out on a, a loose connection. Uh, there he is, though. Say hi to everybody, Acnix. Yeah, and as usual, my uh, connection drops out when we start the show. That is awesome. That's becoming per a perfect return time, the, though. <laughs> yeah, you know the NSA, CIA. That they're they're out to get me still. Apparently. They're right on top of you, man. <laughs> All right, so um, I guess you know I was thinking we would kind of break things up into like different topics of like the social aspect of things, the things dealing with scaling the chain itself, and then issues with second layer protocols. But uh, a little bit before that, um, you know, I think Nopara had uh, some questions he wanted to ask and maybe give Chris a little time to kind of, I don't know, explain Open Bazaar, I guess, in the context of a lot of this. Uh, yes, uh, first of all, uh, that's, was not what I wanted to ask you. I just wanted to to make sure that this discussion becomes civilized. And I'd like to ask you guys if it's possible to not call a VCH Bcash, to not be disrespectful. <laughs> and on the other hand, it is just as disrespectful for Bitcoin developers to call the BCH Bitcoin something. Uh, because that's kind of like, you know, you want to steal the brand. So let's let just, can we, can we agree all of us to call it BCH and not Bcash and not Bitcoin cash? Yeah, I'll of course agree. we'll keep it clashy, right? You know, <laughs> I can agree. Yeah, I mean, in, in, the, in the interest of civility, yeah, I wasn't planning on, um, using any of the unwanted names for things. Do they, do you guys really care actually if if uh I, I Bcash slips? <laughs> no, no, I'm just wondering if Chris actually cares cuz I you know, I don't want to be insulting but <laughs> No, I mean I, I it's I'm not going to take offense. So I'm gonna... <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Might slip, I imagine. All right, all right. Now now that the joking is gone though. Uh, I don't know, Chris, you want to kind of like explain a little about like Open Bazaar and like where your thoughts on that have kind of led you regarding the whole divide? Yeah, I mean, so Open Bazaar um you know, people that, who who might not know, it's it's uh, you know, it's a peer-to-peer -peer marketplace that uses um Bitcoin, so it's kind of no middleman. It allows for kind of uncensorable trade. And uh, we're kind of chugging along. It's not um, exactly where we, we want it to be so far. It's, it's um, uh, you know, we've got some more things to do to improve the browsing experience. We're trying to build out like, like a web version and, and this sort of stuff. Um, but we're kind of getting close to, to where it is. We, you know, whether it ultimately kind of takes off and becomes wildly successful kind of remains to be seen. But, um, you know, in terms of this actual debate, you know, we did use Bitcoin um, or, or still do. 
And, you know, we're actually one of the first people to implement SegWit. I don't know, maybe the first uh, to put it in the production. Um, and it kind of rushed out the door because, you know, transaction fees are, you know, pretty critical to e-commerce and, you know, we're an e-commerce app. And so, you know, we wanted to get, um, you know, have our users have as low transaction fees as they could transacting on the platform. And, you know, it, it back in, this was, you know, OpenZar ended up getting released in, I don't know, August, I think, this latest version, August or September um, of last year. And I mean, fees were already pretty high. And then, you know, of course they just, they just kept going up and they hit, you know, um, I think everyone knows it was like a median transaction fee of like 30 bucks and like an average transaction fee of like a hundred bucks um, around uh, December of last year. We're back down to much more reasonable levels with Bitcoin, I think. I don't know, what is it like 50 cents today, somewhere around there, but um, uh, largely due to just like a drop in demand, right? So it was really the, the transaction fees were just like, we got hit with a huge wave of demand due to like the speculative bubble that happened at the end of the year. Um, or at least that's my opinion. I know other people th think that like the chain was being spammed or something like that. But um, so I, I think certainly from our perspective as Open Bazaar, I mean, we had no choice but to implement um, other coins and, and kind of make the platform like more coin agnostic. And we're still kind of working to move in that direction. We're doing more, more work right now to enable people to use like multiple coins at the same time. So like, you can say like, we want to accept Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, uh, Zcash, Litecoin, uh, Dash, you know, whatever. Um, so that that's kind of in the works with that. So how many coins do you accept at the moment now on Open Bazaar? Um, well, just due to the nature of the way the app was originally designed, it's just one at a time because it was originally designed around Bitcoin. Oh no, um, I mean, uh, how many different coins does the platform accept in general? Yeah, uh, cash, Bitcoin Cash, yeah. Bitcoin. three. Yep, but you can only you have to kind of it forces you to kind of pick one, right? Yeah. Um, so we're, we're, that's one of the things that we're changing is is the requirement that you have to use only one at a time. Um, but it was largely only one at a time because you know I think my view and probably a lot of view of you guys is I think at at the end of the day. I, it's just much cleaner if everyone just takes the same coin, right? It's like so much less of a headache to implement this stuff, to have to, you know, worry about different exchange rates and, and everything. Um, it's just much nicer if you only have one currency to work with. And and so we're, you know, I, I wanted that one currency to be Bitcoin. I, th I think we all did. And um, it just turned out not to be practical. Mm -hmm. so it, it kind of sounds to me, it's not the original vision of the creator of Open Bazaar. Uh, as I remember back then, it was called Dark Markets and created by Amir Taki. I'm not exactly sure about the story there. And the story was that he, he did these dark markets in a hackathon uh, because he thought the current darknet markets are well, don't enable enough things for people and can be shut down. And that's why they created dark markets. And uh, how, how did it become Open Bazaar? I, I, I miss that part. Yeah, so Brian, who, who's, um, you know, my boss, our CEO, he, um, he, kind of, he, he was looking for a project to get involved with in the Bitcoin space at the time. Um, he was working for I, he, he had like a regular job. Um, and so he was like looking for something you could get involved with like full time. And so he, he when Dark Market uh, was announced, he like emailed Amir and was like, hey, this is awesome. What are you guys doing? You know, can I help out? Can I contribute? Uh, 
you know, what are you doing? And um, Amir said, uh, look, we have no plans to actually continue working on it. We've got other stuff we're doing. So like, if you want to like, just take it over, go, go right ahead. So Brian kind of like took it over. He, he forked the code base and, uh, and he renamed it to Open Bazaar. I think the de decision to rename it was just like, a large part of it was just like the whole like dark market with the whole like dark theme was kind of Amir's brand, right? He had like dark wallet going on, dark market. So he didn't want to like just tread on like Amir's kind of branding. So that, that was the, the reason for the, the, the brand change. Plus, um, you know, it turns out in, in kind of the view of most of us who work for, for the company is that, um, you know, it's, it's useful for other things too, besides just like, you know, sales of, of goods that, you know, are currently illegal, the government currently deems illegal when they maybe shouldn't be. But, you know, other things too, like if you're an eBay seller and eBay's taking 10% cut on all your transactions, um, you know, that 10% that cut could like, if you had zero fees, that would probably represent like a doubling, tripling, or quadrupling so, of your so profits. So you're not taking any cuts? No. No. Because you cannot. Yeah, yeah, it's it's an open platform um, and people just connect directly with each other and trade. So we don't have like really any visibility into what people, what trades are actually taking place. So you have some kind of income? Not at the moment. <laughs> no, we've been operating what, like two, two and a half years, three years, just burning venture capital. So, um, you know, the plan is to make money at some point, but uh, before you can make money, you have to have a large user base. So that's the primary focus. All right, thanks. All right, well, so one question I have to ask is, like, with all the, the, the problems created in the big spam run-up, um, you know, over the last holiday, and I mean, personally, I think, I do think that manipulation in spam had something to do with it, but I don't, like, put the blame squarely on manipulation. Like, there, there was a huge aspect of that that was just organic use, but... Like, why, why is most of your effort being concentrated on supporting alternative currencies as opposed to kind of more long-term work uh, on integrating Lightning? And, you know, especially with the liquidity issues of that, that might even potentially offer uh, a way to make revenue in the long-term, acting as a, like a middle node, linking the liquidity into the individual shops, and maybe even kind of hybridizing that with the, uh, the escrow service that things count on right now. Well, I, I mean, I, I could give my, like, my own opinion personally and also like as a company, but I'll just say the reason why many companies are not going all in on Lightning at this point is because it's, it's extremely speculative, right? Uh, we don't know... I, at this point, I don't think we even know if it's going to work at all, let alone be viable for like the particular use cases. Um, so I think the reason why you see many companies, not just Open Bazaar, taking a multi-coin approach is just because there's so much uncertainty and we don't know which one is ultimately going to come out on top. So we have to kind of position ourselves to be ready for anything. And if anything, like what happened in December um, of last year or the end of last year kind of showed companies that like if you put you know, everything on Bitcoin or everything even on a single coin, and then it doesn't deliver or it falls apart for one reason or another, like you've got, you're, you're really kind of screwed. Like you have so much work to do to, to get yourself, um, to, you know, to, to shift the way, you know, wherever the market's going. So I think it's just in general, all these companies who are taking a multi-coin approach, it's just kind of hedging their bets. Um, but specifically in terms of Lightning, I, I, I know you guys are probably 
you know, a lot less skeptical to say the least than I am, but it's like, I don't know, it's still very much a, um, it's still very much an unknown. Like we don't know if lightning is going to be wildly successful. It's possible that it could be, but like, you know, in terms of like building any payments application, I mean, if you're trying to introduce any payments app at this point, I mean, the, you, the overwhelming odds are going to be that you're going to fail regardless of whether it's cryptocurrency or not, just due to the nature of, you know, payments and, and how the marketplace works. So, but Lightning has a lot of like usability issues that even things like PayPal and stuff like this don't have um, that I think are going to make it like so much harder to, to, to receive adoption um, than, than other payment apps might, uh, or even other coins. So, um, I don't know. So I, I think it's very, very early to kind of like say like, you know, lightning's it, let's dump all of our resources on lightning. Well, I mean, like, you know, again, like I, I want to keep this, you know, civil, but I mean, from my point of view, like a lot of the basis of that skepticism, I think is just, is mostly rooted on misinformation and people not really digging into the particulars of how things are developing. Like, I mean, for instance, the the abstraction issue between on-chain and off-chain funds, there are already multiple solutions being actually built out right now for that. For instance, to allow a payment to be initially made over Lightning to be linked to an on-chain transaction that delivers the funds or vice versa, where somebody can pay on-chain and atomically link that to a deliverable lightning payment. And as well with a lot of the, the routing issues and the liquidity issues, I think like the, the channel factory concept, everybody's kind of looking at that and kind of misconstruing that there is some kind of federation being introduced in like the channel factory being abstracted below the individual channels. But like one of the things you can do with that not involving kind of second layer channels on that is just improve the liquidity constraints of the routing. Like for instance, like you could have some hops uh, on a, a payment you're routing go through a channel with like five different endpoints on it that would have a much more increased connectivity to the rest of the network. Yeah, and so I feel like, you know, a lot of these things, they do have very workable solutions out there that I feel like are just being ignored or well, kind of misrepresented. All right, let's talk about that for a second. I mean, you're you're completely right that there are solutions out there that can improve on the status quo. The, the question is, can it improve on the status quo to the point where it actually ends up working really well? Now, let me just kind of give you an example of the status quo. I mean, you said like people are kind of like making comments about Lightning, not really understanding it. You know, I... I actually, this was maybe a month or so ago, I, I synced up a lightning node for the purpose of downloading the channel graph, right? So I took the channel graph and I, um, I took the, uh, I, I plucked out a lot of code from the LND code base that's used to like find routes and this sort of stuff. And so I wrote a bunch of code and I wanted to figure out, okay, what is the probability that like any one node on the network that has a certain capacity could send a payment to any other node on the network, um, what's the probability of finding a route? Now, the actual graph itself that you have, the offline graph, it only tells you total channel capacity. It doesn't tell you how that capacity is distributed. So the best we could kind of do with just that data is calculate maybe what we could call like a candidate route. Um, you still have to kind of drill deeper into the actual hops to figure out whether that candidate route is actually viable or not. But the candidate route is actually a, a reasonable proxy for how 
likely you are to find routes in the network. Um, and the, with the actual like route failure rates going to be higher once you drill down. But it was so like for like a $20 payment, the route failure rate from again, from any one sending from any one node with 20 bucks in their capacity to any other node on the network that had an open channel, it was a 75% failure rate. And for a $100 payment, it was a 99% failure rate. And like, I mean, I, needless to say, I mean, that's, that's like, no way that's going to be viable. So of course, there are going to be solutions like you you mentioned, where you can multiplex the value across different channels or that that's or not, maybe multiplex isn't the right term, but you can pick um, multiple routes to send your payment. Um, that's going to help, um, you know, channel factories, uh, certainly payment hubs, right? That's certainly going to help. Um, but are those solutions going to get it to the point where it's going to be viable? Like we have to go from a 99% failure rate on a hundred dollar payment to a 99.9% .9 success rate. If you want this to be successful, that's a very long way to go. And I just, you know, at this point, I'm not willing to kind of like declare victory um, for the lightning network versus other things. Well, I mean, like, well, I like, like most, most of the were told to, to keep the uh, value in their nodes pretty low. I mean, uh, I believe that's still the general consensus. Yeah. So. Keep the, the yeah. So, low. so. So I agree with that. So. Route that value. I I think if you tried this in a little while, it'd be more successful. Well, I mean, we don't have to necessarily wait. Like I went through and I took the same data from from the graph. It was just on my local disk, and I just bumped every single channel capacity by 10x to see. Okay, if I bump everything by 10x, how likely is it to route payments? And your twenty dollar payment rate went from again like seventy five failure rate down to maybe 40. Okay. So, uh, I mean, a 10 X increase in capacity certainly helped, but it didn't help to the point where it was still viable. So, um, but I mean, you're still talking like early days and it's, it's not just the, the amount in the channels. It's also the, the connectivity. So, I mean, yeah. like one thing, like I've been, cause I've really been following this and trying to see like how early adopters could really start addressing these issues. And it's really basic things that aren't even being done right now. Like people trying to run routing nodes are not looking at like the, the shop selling things and making sure that the funds they put are enough for an item. And it's more, it's just things that when more people come in and, and go through this learning curve, it'll kind of just address itself. Well, and again, that, that learning curve is your part of your UX issue, right? That's part of it. But um, I mean, to your point, I mean, it does work and it can work in like potentially can work in like a hub and spoke system. So like if you guys, I'm sure you guys have all used the eclair wallet, right? Um, on like Android. Yeah. Um, so if you open up eclair and you can open a channel with eclair, um, you know, it gives you an option, you know, open a channel with eclair. So you just push the button and it opens it. And then you go and you try and make like a payment to Blockstream by something on Blockstream. It'll go through every time. And the reason it goes through every time is because eclair put $1,500 of their own money into a channel with Blockstream. You can go look that up on the graph. Um, same thing with like bit refill. Payments will go through to bit refill every time because they put $1,000 of their money in a channel with bit refill. So, I mean, that works, right? That's, that's your payment hub model. Um, you know, is that, you know, is that going to be viable at scale? Right. I mean, that's going to like, if you're talking, you know, payments to Amazon, it's not going to be $1,500. You're going to have to put in the channel. It's going to be millions of dollars. Right. So, um, you know, that that's an open question. Is that model going to be, uh, you know, as decentralized as other alternatives? That's an open question. So, um, I, you know, I, it's, I'm, I'm not ruling it it's out. Let me put it that way. Question. What's that? 
is this really an open question? You know, oh, yeah. there are thousands of academics looking at the paper and say it is going to work. Uh, and there are probably <laughs> and, and also, many saying it's not going to, too. I mean, it's, it's well, not. Sorry, expensive. real quick, Chris, is like the, the hub and spoke assumption is is really, again, like something that is going to naturally work itself over time because like you have companies like Eclair or like BitRefill doing this now while the network is in beta as like, okay, we're going to be the first people to do this. But the more this expands and the more people start plugging into the network, you're going to have other people doing the same thing, offering alternative routes to the same places and filling in that connection gap. And really at the end of the day, the only kind of long-term disincentive for that is the exposure of your keys on a, a hot wallet. And that even in the long-term, you can potentially design new hardware wallets that would just automatically sign things as long as your net channel balance increased. And so like as, as these things kind of fill themselves in, that whole like hub and spoke topology is not going to last because there's always going to be somebody with some Bitcoin they're not doing anything with who will want to throw it in there for the low, I guess, interest equivalent of routing fees. Maybe, right? That's that's a prediction, right? I mean, if we're talking about, um, you know, we're, we're you know, a asking us, you know, why, why people are a little skeptical of it today, it's because we're still seeing predictions and we're not seeing results, right? So we have to wait and see. So just uh, real quick, I, I think, it's it's weird to me that you like you took software that you know is in beta and that you know has like very low value per node and like anybody that believes that it would work would tell you that your test was going to fail right like you're not going to be able to send a hundred dollars even if you bump it up by a thousand times like most people are throwing five bucks or less in their wallet so it, it it seems like a weird exercise to go through it would be like taking email when it was in beta and I'm um, trying to send like two megabit files, right? Like that, it's not going to work when we were just putting together SMTP and figuring things out and that the, you know, attachment size was really small. Like it's not much of a test. So the, re the reason that that's weird to me is that we're at a stage right now where you have to go, this is new software. So you really have to look at the design and evaluate whether the design looks good. Then you can look at the implementation and the types of bugs that are coming up and say, what are the likelihood that these sort of bugs are going to get fixed? But you can't just like take it in beta and stress test it. Well, I, yeah, no. So this wasn't a stress test. And I did stress that that this is beta software and it's going to improve. I definitely mentioned that. So no, but I'm, um, what, I'm, what I'm questioning but, is the logic of that test, right? Like so. You, you made the claim that like everyone has looked at this and said like this is definitely going to work that's not the case no no right? i didn't i didn't say that i mean there, there are a lot of people that think it's going to work but i didn't say yeah. everybody all right and there's quite a few people i mean look if i thought that lightning was going to work i mean i'd probably be like a regular on your show right and like like yeah, say, yeah. no it's know, okay if you don't i just got to push back and i mean if you say that this is how you concluded that it doesn't work and like you know that's, that's a ridiculous not, that's, point i got it no that's say that no, Wasn't we actually just saying that this is not a viable option right now? I mean, currently the debate is what options do we have in sending payments? Bitcoin isn't working. Transaction fees are too high. Bitcoin Cash, it's a lot easier to use. And everyone's saying, well, Lightning Network, Lightning Network. The fact is Lightning Network isn't operational at the moment, so it's not actually a current solution. So in the interim, like I agree, maybe Lightning no, Network is going to be awesome. But in the interim, what are people going to use? Are we not allowed to use these coins that you call shit coins? Like what, what are so, our options? You want us to go back to fiat? No, no, that's a, that's a really good question. The, the, the so, issue comes in with so, small transactions, smaller, 
value transactions, right? And Bitcoin main chain transactions for larger value is fine. Just pay the fee. It's not that big of a deal. Smaller transactions, you can use Lightning right now. And everything in between is actually a small window that we're missing. And all of those those options are available on, on Bitcoin as we know it right now. Well, I mean, yeah, let me just make a, a couple of points to the previous point. I, I still wasn't use it, holding this up as like a beta test for the purpose of you know, showing that it doesn't work. It's just that, uh, you know, one of the big concerns with Lightning is the viability of routing payments. And right now it's in beta, it's probably even worse than I would expect it to be, right? In terms of the ability to, to route payments. And so the point of it is to just show that there's a long way to go. It's not to like cherry pick data and say, you know, here it's, it's this is why Lightning's not working. It's just to say, here's where it is today and here's where it needs to get to, to be viable. And there's a big gap between those two, right? I mean, do you guys, would you guys admit, admit that that's true, that there's a big gap between where it is today and where it needs to be to be a viable payment system? Totally. What I, all I was saying is that your methodology for deciding how big that gap was, was really silly to me. Like it just doesn't click because- Well, I mean, I you, can, you, can how... take that, you can take that raw data and do anything you want with it. I mean, you can make more connections. You can increase the, the value of all those channels. Like, I mean, you said, you know, people are putting small values in the channel. It's like an average of like 20 bucks. So bump it up to 200 bucks and say, okay, what happens if everyone bumped it, put 200 in the channel? Let's see what would happen, right? You can play around with that. And you can see the data, and you know again, I'm 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 having a hard time seeing how you get from here to there. Is basically okay. what. Okay, real quick, like n nobody's saying that there's not a lot of of growth to still go through, but I think it's just the long term perspective of like you know actually trying to work with that. But um, I think Janine had something she wanted to say to you, and she hasn't had a chance to talk yet. Yes, yeah, specifically on the issue of fees. Um, I mean, I was sending Bitcoin transactions throughout the whole spam or, you know, overload of new people entering Bitcoin phase that we had at the end of 2017. And I really didn't have a problem with the fees. And I think one of the things that is under recognized in that whole discussion is that the fee, uh, the fee algorithms that are used in wallets are very different across the space. And I think one of the problems is people don't know how to evaluate wallets based on that as a criteria. They don't think that that's a competitive feature. They just kind of assume that that's a thing that Bitcoin does and the wallet does not have any influence over what the fee is when the wallets have a lot of influence over that. So as a person who I did not have any problem whatsoever with the fees during the whole spam period. And part of that reason is because I was using wallets that have good fees um, or at least give me the option to choose an optimal time to send a transaction in which the fees are uh, much lower. And so I think that's part of the debate that was really kind of skated over. A lot of the wallets were not being, um, they were either not given enough support in terms of development to improve the fee algorithm, or they were, they were, where's, where's that? <laughs> Sorry. Or they, or, <laughs> or they were um, making excuses or like they were shifting the responsibility of that fee algorithm being not as good as it could be to say that the Bitcoin network was broken. And I think that's something that people don't talk enough about. 
Okay, I think this, that's a this, really important right. point as well. So I didn't want to interrupt, Chris, but I think that that's, I mean, on, on the one hand, I mean, I completely agree there needs to be more education about different wallet perks. I mean, we have to also take into consideration most new people coming into the space are using Coinbase. What were the Coinbase fees like all through that period? Like, they were astronomical. So if we're actually looking for mass adoption, which is the ultimate goal of, of Bitcoin, it is really difficult to convince someone to send a $5 payment to someone when it's $30 for, for the transactions. So if we can get more education about different wallets, teach people how to use them and all of that, I think that that's a really great next step. Yeah. Now, I mean, this is, I guess, a question for you guys too, is like the, uh, you, we, we talked about fees and I mean, you guys seem to think, okay, like fees in December were, were maybe either spam or you could have paid less if you had a better wallet. But I mean, it seems like the 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 vision of bitcoin so is i had to abandon my project what's called tumblebit because of the fees so uh, it's it's not like everyone is on the same same side here okay yeah, so i i i don't i don't deny that fees weren't a problem and i think it was it was definitely to i mean to me personally i saw enough evidence that there was some spam going on in certain periods maybe not all the time i think really most of the fee problems were that a lot of people were joining at the same time they were using centralized exchanges which hold their funds in a way that maybe the fees do not end up being uh, optimal um, so i don't deny that the fees were a problem i'm just saying that a huge contributor to that was that people were using certain wallets that had bad fee algorithms. Oh, sure, sure. But this maybe goes into kind of like a long-term vision for you guys um, question. So like in 14 years, the block reward's going to go down to less than a Bitcoin per block, right? And I mean, unless if we have continue having like exponential price increases, then we're probably still okay. But let's say like 14 years from now, the price is exactly where it is today. You're going to need to replace almost all of the block reward with fees. And is the vision, my, my take on the vision from the Bitcoin core developers is basically the, the, the way to replace that is going to be like 50 to 100. It's going to take, well, let me say this. If you keep the block size where it is, you're looking at 50 to $100 fees to replace the current block reward. And I, I guess my question for you guys is, is that your vision for Bitcoin too? Is that you want to see it get to that point where like the fees are what they were in December, but like that's like the legitimate fee, not due to spam or not due to anything. That's just what you have to pay. And I guess also the question is like, I mean, how do you view Lightning as being viable in that model? Like I really struggle to see people paying 50 to $100 to uh, open a channel. Now, maybe, maybe we're talking like too far out. So I don't know, but this is maybe like a long-term vision question. Really, really quick is like, this is a very, complicated issue. So I'm sorry if I go rambling on, but for first to kind of respond to the instance in December, I think that is a very multifaceted situation. We had wallets with very bad fee uh, estimation algorithms, pretty much artificially bidding fees up. We were dealing with effectively just the beginning curve of SegWit introduction. So mostly old style transactions being less efficient with block space and a bunch of businesses that were just being horribly inefficient, not batching transactions, not being efficient with their own fee estimation just because they're rolling in profits and it's they, they don't really care. They just throw the money at the problem and they're still making money hand over fist. And like, I think like that, as well as like spam and some manipulation 
was like all kind of a feeding, like, you know, it, it all fed into the kind of fees that we saw there. And I, as far as the manipulation point, I really do believe that miners were intentionally exacerbating that just to kind of test how high fees could get without really killing demand for that block space. And I mean, like, you know, I, Trace Mayer has said this multiple times, like it really only makes sense that if your business depends on this in the long term, you kind of want to push the envelope early on and see if that's sustainable. And then as far as in the long term with a fee market, I, I don't really think you have to replace the, the block subsidy point by point. It just has to be a steady, predictable level of, of fee revenue. And it has to be more than the operational cost of the miners. So we very much could see a world where like you're only seeing one or two Bitcoins in aggregate in fees after the subsidy's gone away as far as miner revenue, but that's still being enough to, to keep mining going. Like it's steady, the mempool backlog keeps it from fluctuating wildly and miners would just find their equilibrium with that. So I, I don't Wouldn't you in that scenario have like a ton of ASIC sitting idle, just kind of like waiting to attack the network? Well, I mean, it's kind of a balancing game. It's like you need you need to not let too much hash rate go offline, but at the end of the day, like you don't have to replace the block reward completely. Like for instance, we could have the price go up exponentially, like have that subsidy still taking care of miners' profitability the whole march up, and then whatever the fee market settles out to be is still profitable. Like they've they've never hit that limit until it settles to that. And then we get to the point where their operating costs are just below their revenue. Okay, yeah, I mean, I, I fully agree. You know, you can, you know, if price keeps going up, it solves all problems. Uh, it's just, it's just like, you know, we, we have, at some point we have to assume there's not going to be the subsidy and we have to, uh, we're gonna have to like replace the block reward with fees in some capacity or another. Well, yeah, it's just that like, we don't have to like one for one in Bitcoin terms, replace it. It just has to be enough that the vast majority of hash rate can still profitably mine. Yeah, I've got a, I've got a quick question for Naomi. What, what do you think, uh, what do you think the debate is about? Just if you could re restate it, because what you said wasn't what I was thinking the debate was about. And that was, that was interesting to me. Just, I would have thought that you would have said the debate was about how a coin can scale uh, to lots of transactions and still remain secure. That's that's kind of the debate in my mind. And what you said was a little bit different. Oh, you're muted. Uh, there we go. Uh, it depends who you talk to. Um, I blame Mad Bitcoins on the chat for making me uh, mute my mic. By the way. Um, it, I mean, it, it's so complicated, right? I, I've had discussions, like I've been in the space for coming up to six years now. So I've just been around people who are just talking about this all the time. I don't have a tech background. So I rely on chatting to people like you know, Chris or um, you know, awesome people who know a lot more about this than me. But it seems that the main issues that come up are Bitcoin is unusable because of transaction fees or it takes too long to confirm uh, or um, you know, Bitcoin Cash is insecure because the block sizes are just too big, so it can't sink in time. It give, you know, it's, it's it seems like it's a it's a complicated issue that I think has actually uh, devolved into this sort of dogma versus dogma that I've seen. Like I, I recently, as you know, I, I put up a post because I interviewed Roger Bear, and um, 
And it just got like hate tweet after hate tweet after hate, just like hundreds of people who are just like, oh my God, this is a sacrilege. And, uh, and it's so funny because a couple of months before that, I was getting hate tweet from the Bitcoin Cash side, which is hilarious to me. So it doesn't matter what you do, you can't win in this space. Like there were tweets of people saying, oh no, Naomi will never come over to the Bitcoin Cash side because she's in bed with the core boys and all of this. And it's just like, it gets to a point where I don't even know what the debate is about anymore. It just seems like people who, um, are just you know, digging their heels in, not listening to each other, creating straw man arguments. Now there are legitimate concerns on both sides. I share the concern that at the moment we don't have a, a usable option, like Lightning uh, Network isn't usable at the moment. I do share the concern that, you know, block sizes, obviously that's gonna be an issue. Is that, is it a, a block size that's too large? Is that 32 uh, megabytes? Is that eight? Is that a hundred? I, I don't think we actually know that either at the moment um so it's just a really complex issue i think that the more we talk out ideas in this sort of a forum i think is is very beneficial because i, I just find everything on social media at the moment has just evolved into you know ad hominem attacks that i find really distressing considering that this space started out with a group of really ideologically driven people who believed in taking power away from the government they wanted a money that could be used by a lot of people so that you know money couldn't be stolen to fund wars or whatever like it was this common purpose and i don't see much of that common purpose still existing anymore which is really disheartening because we already took away the power <laughs> so uh, I, I want to ask you something <laughs> I, I want to ask you something it's it's not really about the debate but about you so everyone knows you of the bitcoin girl video and you are allowed to sing it but what do you what did you what other things did you do in the space she was on, I know her from Stossel. How do you pronounce yeah. his name? Stossel, yeah. yeah. Well, um, in the space, I mean, I started out working at the New York Bitcoin Center. So I was there for a couple of years. Um, and my background, I'm a television producer. So I interview a lot of people in the space and I produce for John Stossel. I made a documentary about Bitcoin 2015. It won a bunch of awards at Amsterdam uh, Film Festival and I won the Anthem Film Festival as well. Um, so my background is in, is in film. Um, and of the film, Bitcoin, the end of money as we know it. Oh, of course, I saw it. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Um, I had no idea you did that. Good job. Yes, yeah, so I was a producer on that. And then, uh, yeah, currently I've got some like more film things coming up. But basically my, my, um, my perspective is trying to educate people about this. And I, I have an economics background, not a tech background, as I mentioned. So I'm from like the Austrian school. I, um, I really believe in competing currencies, this Hayekini idea of, of having multiple currencies. That's why I don't buy into this uh, Bitcoin maximalist talk of we can only have one. I love that there are many, many things out there that are competing. And let's just let the market decide. It's great to have conversations like this where you can uh, uh, talk about the merits of one versus the other and uh, in a nice forum. Um, but yeah, I'm happy for them to coexist. I don't see why that's an issue and the market will decide. You also have the sweet MC gigs. Yeah, so I MC about like at least 20 blockchain projects a year uh, in the space. I did consensus this year and last year. Um, and so it's just nice to constantly be on the move at, at conferences, listening to new people, developing cool tech, etc. 
So uh, you said that you, uh, you know, you worked on that film, The End of Money as We Know It, and you got in the space like six years ago, and you're kind of, uh, you know, looking at this whole thing about the scaling situation and what's going on here. Can I ask, like, when you originally got into Bitcoin and it was all about fighting government uh, censorship and moving away and doing your own money, has that has that position changed like over time? Like, has you have you seen like uh, something come into space where you're like, well, I guess, you know, we can't really do this unless, uh, you know, the transactions per second are at this level and like we're willing to negotiate this uh this ability of like censorship resistance to get this transaction per second i mean the, the everything's evolved in the space when i got into the space like it wasn't blockchain it was just bitcoin because that's all that existed right um and then now you've got all kinds of competing currencies and i think a lot of them are great i actually really like zcash i like monero um there are there's some really interesting things going on so now you know this whole ico bubble you've seen that happen instead of of pumping shit coins people pump their <laughs> shit ico projects um so i mean if you're talking about everything evolving yeah we're getting smarter every time uh, an exchange is hacked everything time something goes wrong with the network it gets more robust and people learn from that so it's yeah it's been interesting for me just just following that and and trying to cover as much of it as possible to keep people updated with what's going on yeah, I, I mean, I'll take that question too. Like, I, you know, I'm, I'm, me and Naomi shared very similar political views, as probably most of you guys do too. I, I imagine. Um, you know, I, I want this to be. No, I'm, a, I'm a full-on socialist. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, 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 you know, I got into this because I was, you know, I, I wanted to, you know, un undermine the Fed, right? You know, to, to create uncensorable money and. Um, you know, you asked the question, like, is there a point at which, um, you know, we're, we're willing to trade off, you know, some centralization or some control over the system, you know, for some more throughput and lower fees? And I mean, I, that's a good question. Um, you know, I do think there definitely is a point. I, I'm pretty sure that point's not at two megabytes, right? Um, and so it's just... It's it's we we will definitely hit a point where there's this trade-off. I just don't feel like we're anywhere close to that trade-off yet. Well, and just, I'm sorry, I was just thinking like you know censorship resistant money is like something that we've never seen in history. So it's like something that's really just like I don't know. I'm like one of those where like I, I'm also interested in you know different implementations if they're going to find ways to do things to make a you know censorship resistance with uh you know doing things a different way to where we can handle the load. But I mean like with what we have now. It does seem like to me the only way forward is to develop a fee market and do, you know, um, off chain transactions and uh, trying to manage it that way. Because the idea that we're going to create a new censorship resistant money, I don't know, unless we have something like uh, Mimblewimble or the Coda Protocol or something where there's like uh, really good built in cryptography to where transactions can't be traced back on chain. I mean, like that's where uh, I don't know. I just. Uh, I don't know. The, the way I see it is like the only way forward is what we've got, you know, and that's where I, I see where you are coming from, though, as a company. You know, you've got to do something. You've got employees. You've got to pay people, you know, and there's uh, there's uh, these other implementations that do need to be tested out and everything. So, uh, yeah, well, this you know, is also this. I'm primarily talking just me as an individual. I mean, my company views are I mean, the company view is just we're going to be coin agnostic, you know, but my view, um, okay. you know, my view is like you know, on the actual like scaling debate, you know, I, I, I completely agree. If you say, can, can we handle all the world's transactions on a blockchain today? No, we can't, right? Um, not without lots of centralization. Can we handle uh, Visa scale? Eh, probably not, okay? Um, but can we, 
you know, how long do we have before we get to a point where we start having to make tough trade-offs? And I think we probably have like five to 10 years before we have to start making the trade-offs that you guys think happen at one megabyte, right? Whereas I think that trade-off happens, you know, at, I don't know, a hundred megabytes or, or beyond. And so, so let me ask you about that. Cause that, that is actually, I think the, the central debate, like how big can the blocks be and still be safe, right? Yeah. If we thought it was a gigabyte, we'd be on your side and like, yeah, we, we would have wanted to flip that bit. We, we think it's a lot, lot lower. You guys think it's higher. And what it comes down to is how do we figure out um, how to communicate together and get on the same page with even a methodology, right, of finding that number. Yeah, uh, I, so, I think, so I think research is a good a good way to do that, right? We've seen you know research into like throughput and whatnot that that um, you know would suggest like for example the laptop I'm using to talk to you guys right now could could process a hundred megabyte blocks. So, so I, I, let me let me ask you this then because I I think I think this this might be really fruitful, right? Mm -hmm. uh, how how uh, do you think that? there is any uh, economic advantage as it is right now, as, as it was even at one megabyte blocks, to be in the same data center with the miner that found the last block. So if you're, if you're a miner, you're somewhere on the globe, and uh, miner A finds the block and you're miner B, if, you're, if miner B is in the same data center, is my, does miner B get an economic advantage over miner C that's maybe on the other side of the planet, even at like one megabyte blocks? Uh, very slight. Okay. I mean, not, not so, like, okay. I'm but, not sure if it's going to be like, have a, a feasible, right. you know, an actual impact. Sure. But if, if we, if we know that that is already a tendency, then we already know we have like in theory, a security issue, right? So yeah. it's already like as a, as a security design person, I'm already uncomfortable, right? That's not ideal. What would be ideal? Because if it's even, let's say it's 1% or a 10th of a percent, if nothing else changes, and Naomi, you know from like studying economics, that if nothing else changes, everything remains exactly the same. Um, so assuming assuming all else equal, right, in economic speak, that guy has a an advantage, then over time, he's going to be more profitable than his competitors, and he'll drive his competitors out of business, right? So we don't uh, need to know exactly what well, that number is, but that's just basic logic and basic economic science. Yes, and there's also also that. possible ways around this too, right? So like we have, um, I know it's kind of like a, a priority of, of people in Bitcoin Cash, still in kind of the, re re um, the research phase, but uh, um, for, for kind of like pre-consensus stuff. So, okay, I mean, but that, I mean, as as it's designed right now, did that make sense to you, Naomi? I know we got it. Naomi's going to leave, so I want to make sure that as much as possible we we get her thoughts too. So let me just re restate the argument. So Chris and I, from a technical standpoint, we agree that if the miners are right next to each other, then there's an economic advantage because your chances of finding the next block is better because you're going to hear about the last one sooner, so you have more opportunity to make guesses. So. Because that guy uh, gets an advantage by being close to the other miner, this is where I, I, I'm kind of wondering your opinion if you if you buy this argument. That would, over time, cause that miner, uh, whoever it was that was closest to the one that found the next block, to drive the other competitors out, even if it's a really tiny amount of additional profit they can't get to. Well, I mean, that's... I mean, sorry, I'm, sorry I'm, go, go ahead, Chris. I'm sorry, but like... Even if it's a really tiny, I mean, it, let's say it's 0.0001%, which is probably what it is. Is that enough to drive out, you know, competitors? I, I don't, I don't. No, think that's that. my question to Naomi, right? She's yeah. got a, a background in economics. If it's, if it was 0.1% more profit, 
in order to have all the miners in the same data center, the, the tendency would be for that miner to beat out his competitors because he's more profitable, right? It might take a thousand years. It might take a hundred years, but in, in theory, at some point he would beat everybody else. And so we'd only end up with one miner and, and that's just an economic sort of analysis. But I mean, that's the main argument has against cryptocurrency block sizes in general, right? But the, practically speaking, we haven't seen it be an issue right now. So what Chris was saying is like, we don't well, know I whether mean, that's a 30 megabits, set, like, we don't know whether it's a 100. Real yeah. quick, man. Right, but there's also, we're talking about logical baselines. I mean, that's the joy of, of Bitcoin, isn't it? Because it's this perfect melding of economics and uh, and tech, right? It isn't just you know, tech-based because people are poking holes in it all the time. If someone spends the money to buy, you know, get 51% of all the computers in the world, they can ruin Bitcoin. You know, it's like it's just not going to happen. Well, I mean Real quick, though, Naomi, it, it is kind of a misconception that it hasn't been causing issues. Like um, right now, I think it's it's been maybe two or three years. Uh, Blue Mat actually developed the uh, the fiber network, which was built on a previous network he created, because we were already seeing kind of orphan issues affect the the mining distribution just at one megabyte. And so, like right now, in order to kind of negate though those centralization pressures, miners are effectively plugging into a centralized sub-network in the Bitcoin network to relay their blocks faster. And so like even right now, like we're already counting on something that's entirely centralized to negate those pressures. Yeah, but that's a good example of, of like an innovation too, right? And it doesn't have to be, so if you're going to scale, you're going to have to innovate, right? I mean, Bitcoin can't, be you're not going to have 100 megabyte blocks gigabyte blocks or whatever it is and have bitcoin look exactly the way it does today right it's going to have to evolve and change something like fiber is an example of the innovation could you have a more decentralized fiber that has a similar protocol but is allows people to kind of plug into a network of nodes that aren't controlled by the same person possibly um there's i i've seen recently in the last like month or two something called ansible which is kind of an interesting like pre-consensus similar to fiber where you're distributing these transactions ahead of time and the actual blocks would transmit around the network in o of one like a block header and like a 32 byte hash so in that scenario um you know this the 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 problem that you mentioned of two nodes being in the same data center. I mean, it's only to the extent that like that, whatever it is, 112 bytes transmits faster in the same data center versus like, um, you know, around the actual net network or this interconnected network of miners or whatever it is. So do you um, agree that if that, if whatever the block size is, if we make it bigger than that, that 0.01% profit gets slightly bigger as, as, as the, well, block no, that, size that's goes kind up, of the, the, the point he's making JW is like there, there are potential ways to kind of negate that, but then beyond just the propagation, no, 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 wait a minute. Issues. There's potential ways to make that better. But the fundamental fact that uh, two miners right next to each other have a small advantage, that's still going to be true. So even if we you know, cut down the latency by half, we would still increase the latency if we increase the block size. Well, let me put it this way. It would still it, it would stay at the marginal level it is now because you're just talking about a block header and the, the bloom filter, whatever you're using to pull the transactions out of your mempool. But <clears throat> like it still requires... Okay, like so we're talking about something that's pretty pretty experimental then. Well, I mean, it's it's it's, it's in use right now, but it's it's still like, the issue is beyond the latency and the propagation. 
they still have to be taking in and validating all of that data, whether they are pre-validating things in the mempool and then just validating the Merkle tree in the process or like actually going through and validating everything. They, they still, those validation costs are still there. And like kind of the issue we, I have- we don't, we don't really want miners well, mining hold, blocks hold, hold, without hold validating. On, hold on, That's hold a different on, security. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Like my, my main problem with this is that you know, it is it is economic nodes that decide the consensus rule. Like if, if I'm sitting here with 100 Bitcoin in my wallet on my node, I am providing economic weight to the consensus rules. Like I will not accept a block that vi or violates those rules and value it at anything. All of the exchanges, like all of the businesses out there, that economic weight is what reinforces the immutability of the consensus rules. And the more you raise the cost of operating a node, like you're not getting rid of the fact that it's that economic weight that is is the the root of the security. Like that's not something that was intentionally designed or wasn't intentionally designed. It's just the way the world works, like gravity. It's it's the economics of the situation. And the more you raise the cost of that node, the less players actually have a say in what they put economic weight into. And they, they effectively become a proxy for other people that other people don't have any control over. So I, I mostly agree with you. And I think that I think it's a shame that a lot of people in the Bitcoin Cash take the opposite view of that because they, they try and argue that like non-mining nodes don't um, have any any effect on the network. I, I don't take that view. I think it's actually wrong. Um, but to to the to the broader point, it's you know, how, how many like non-mining nodes running on people's home computers today, right? Like it's, it's, I, I don't know, in the several thousand, 10,000, you know. If, if you go by uh, Luke Jr.'s figures from his uh, DNS seed node, it's upwards of 100,000. Okay, so let, let's take 100,000 as a baseline, like, and then we have to ask, like, what is the economic weight of those hundred thousand nodes? Like, I would almost be willing to bet that all of them combined have less economic weight than Coinbase, right? Um, so, the 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 economic weight is of of those home nodes. It's it's there. It's it's not negligible, but it's it's also kind of um, you have to realize that not all nodes are created equal in that context. Well, so, yeah, entirely. Like, yeah. I, I, so, but that's that's really quick though. That's the, like kind of the root of my point is that yeah, there's yeah. already a degree of centralization there. And when, so, when you so start I, I, removing I, people's ability to like distribute that money among more players, like have a harder time building consensus for changes, then the entire consensus or like shelling point of these rules isn't really safe. It's not secure. And so we're already in a hugely bad state. And to see people want to raise those costs more, like that just makes me completely, like I, I dig in, like no, okay, until so, we have a lot more data. So let me ask, like, suppose that the opposite is true. I'm not saying that this is guarantee the network will evolve in this manner, but like you, you imagine you end up with a network of a million nodes and none of them are run on home computers, that they're all Coinbase type companies, right? They're all big companies or not even necessarily big companies, but they're all companies. And maybe the cost of running a node is more than it is today. Maybe it's an order of magnitude more than it is today, but you still have more nodes, you still have more economic weight and it's still pretty well distributed. Like, is that worse than the scenario that we have today where we have 100,000 people running it on their home computer and none of those 100,000 really have that much economic weight? 
I would say yes, it's worse because in the situation right now, like my node, yeah, it's it's a fraction of the amount that Coinbase's node is actually validating, but it's it's there. Like if 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 everybody else gets together and does something I don't agree with, I have my chain, I have my balance on that chain. Nobody can force me off of that and the market can do its thing. But the more you concentrate that out of normal people's hands, the more this starts devolving into a kind of feudalistic like corporate dynamic where it's just the big companies that are deciding everything and normal people have no recourse if everybody running the nodes decides to do something the people at large don't agree with. Well, you know, I, I, I'm not sure that you'd have a whole lot of recourse anyway. Uh, you know, it's those, those hundred thousand nodes don't, I mean, unless they're like all whales, you know, the guy who's running a node with $5, you know, takes a $5 payment once a month is not, I mean, he's like, has almost no effect on the network. No, but if you have like, if you have millions of people who, despite it being small amounts comparatively, all have their life savings in it and they stick on that network, like they keep moving with that network, they still, they have their sovereignty. They have the absolute final call. This is what I'm using as money. And once you take out of people's hands the ability to run their own node, you take that recourse out of their hands. You yeah. take the control from them. So let me let me say, I, I'm not, personally myself, I would like to see it always remain feasible to run a node on a home computer for people who want to. Um, I mean, that is kind of like a goal that I would like to see. Uh, it's, um, it's just, you know, again, I when I mentioned earlier, my laptop can do 100 megabyte blocks, I, I didn't, I didn't say like, oh, some server that really beefy high powered server can run hundred megabyte blocks. Like I was stressing that it's like, you know, I can still do that from my home computer um, if I want to. There is going to get to be a point where there's a trade-off where it gets too large that my home computer is not capable of handling that. And the question is, is it acceptable um, to, you know, move to a scenario where people can't run it on their home computer and maybe you need to, you know, if you want to buy, um, if you want to validate the full chain, you need to, let's say, get yourself a server or something like this um, and spend a few thousand dollars. Is that an acceptable trade-off? I don't know. I'm, I'm not, I, you know, I could kind of go either way on that. Um, but I, I, th I think, I think from my perspective, we're like a long way from having to make that decision. Well, I mean, like for me, that's like unacceptable. I mean, like, I will never be willing to make that trade off. And like, honestly, I would go a step further and say that just being able to run it at home is not enough. Like right now, like I have a, a Samsung Edge 6. This has a full node on it. it like it's pruned and it, it's, it's very resource intensive, but I have a full node on my phone. In five years, it's not going to be so resource intensive. It's not going to be a gigantic stress on the system. I can have something that fully validates in my pocket. I'm not trusting I mean, anybody. I'm not in your pocket. Though. It's a bigger deal than that, though. Like the, but, the the value of the network comes from the fact that the network is run by the people, the participants, the whole entire thing from from the guy who runs the business to the business itself, right? Like it's through and through. It, it, it that's why it has value. If you take those people out of the equation, the network isn't self-sufficient in the same way. 
It certainly kind of breaks down on that sound money proposition. All right, re real isn't, quick. Isn't that the, just before we go to that, isn't that the joy of Bitcoin that um, it was developed so that people don't have to agree on these things? If you don't like it, you can fork and you can try something else. And then the market has different options. And then you're talking about it's more valuable for X. It's like, well, it depends on the person what they find valuable, right? Some people might find you know, quicker. Um, uh, transactions may be more valuable for some people. Some lower transaction fees or other. More higher security obviously is a huge concern of people who started out in Bitcoin. Um, but I mean, I, it, it seems strange to be deb debating this as if one of them has to win out in the end. Like, are we talking about this because we're trying to come to a conclusion as to which is better, Bitcoin Cash or, or Bitcoin? Or are we talking about this because, because like, I mean, that that's why we fork. There have been so many forks uh, since Bitcoin was created so that people can try different things so that we can then discuss, like, which methods work? What, what are some new things that we can add on top of Bitcoin? What are some different layers? What are some completely different protocols we can write from scratch that do something entirely? Highly different that have better privacy function or whatever. Like that's why I love the space, and that's why I think it's awesome to have so many different currencies competing. Where once before we had a government monopoly in the money supply, and we didn't see innovation for hundreds of years. I don't like that system, and I love this new system. If that means that there are some coins that are created that have worse security than well, others, of course that's going to happen, and uh, we'll just we'll just uh, figure out which ones they are. When I speak about what has the most value, I I'm talking about what is the most inclusive right and when we talk about block size that's all about uh includes including others including as many people as we can to make the network as large as it possibly can be and there's a reason why when we keep that block size small that everyone can can participate right you know you, because we're able to process validate and send those blocks with as little differentiation between geographical location as possible yeah, I just want okay, to be a bit of a realist, so, so, realist here for a second, though. And it's like, I mean, you can make it so that like everyone can process their blocks and still 99.9% .9 of people are not going to do it, right? It's not, I mean, maybe Naomi is a little bit more of like an average Bitcoiner. Are you running a full node, Naomi? I'm not running a full, full node. That's okay, so, so could, I, could I have the capacity to do it? Yeah, I, I could definitely yeah. do it right so, now, I mean, but I'm just, not going to. There's like a user experience issue here that it's just frankly like people just aren't going to do it. And it's like, I mean, we could keep the block size at, you know, 100 kilobytes and people aren't going to do well, it. Well, and we're not asking for more people to run nodes. We're not asking for everyone to oh. run a node. We're just asking for it not to regress. Not for well, you're, but you're, what you're saying. Really quick, let, let me kind of try to like bridge the gap here is like th there are many different reasons for running a node and like would you agree chris that like a lot of the reasons people don't is the time and the effort and the learning curve like that that's pretty much the no, deterrent I, right? I, I think it's the fact that like having something grinding away like i don't i mean i have a full node bitcoin cash one synced up right now but like i don't i don't like having something grinding away on my laptop right this is my only device you know it's it's not it's not, I, I, it's just not how I want to use my computer, you know? So, so and, it's a matter of resources. Like the relatively right now that takes up too much of your computer's resources. Well, no, it's not like, I, I mean, I shut my laptop lid. I take it places, you know, it's, I don't, I don't, it's not how I use my device to have a server running in my house 24 seven. You know, it's like, if I want a server, you know, I'm going to go to like DigitalOcean or something and create a server. Um, I mean, but it's, it's like, it's okay. It's okay. You're, it's you're for the same reason. Easy. So, so let me give an analogy, right? Like how many people run their own email server, right? We all have email, right? 
And but, you can you, well, uh, email I mean, servers like, far okay, more I, lightweight than a Bitcoin node. Chris, I have to push an email server. I'm sorry. We're we're all like jumping on you, but like Chris, it's it's a world of difference setting up your own server your server to receive an email versus like guaranteeing that the payment you just received is valid and confirmed. Well, and I mean, no, it's not really that much of a difference because like you can use like an SPV wallet and you're like 99% the same level of security, right? So it's uh, like- I'd like to get back to this uh, from a privacy perspective, but really quick, Janine wants to ask something for like 20 minutes now and okay. <laughs> she can't wait. <laughs> Yeah, so most of this discussion has been technical and I kind of want to put in a social question because that is kind of more inclusive of everybody in the conversation. And the question I wanted to ask was with regards to Rajiver, because as Naomi, you mentioned, you got a lot of flack for interviewing him. And um, I think probably one of the biggest reasons that happened is because uh, I want to bring up the subject of Craig Wright. Roger is a supporter of Craig Wright. He goes to meetups with him, happily stands in pictures with him. And I like I personally feel that if if the Bitcoin Cash community, I know this is a very divisive issue in Bitcoin Cash, there are a lot of people in Bitcoin Cash who don't like Craig Wright at all. But I think unless they fully- More so than you would know. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like until they fully you know, divorce themselves from him and until Roger divorces himself from Craig Wright, I don't think I would consider Bitcoin Cash to be a viable thing because if it's being, if it's mainly being marketed and Craig Wright is, you know, a big personality in that space by a guy, you know, who is pretty demonstrably a fraud, um, I feel like that's a big social issue for Bitcoin Cash that they're going to have to overcome uh, if they want to have the kind of influence that Bitcoin has had so far. Well, I definitely agree that people need to divorce themselves from Craig Wright. I mean, that's a that's a huge issue. Uh, and it it's crazy to me that people would actually, I mean, that they're still even, still even talking about him. It, it's kind of strange. But also to say that that delegitimizes an entire technology also is a strange argument because, I mean, I like Zencash, for example. I think that's a really interesting project built on Zcash. It has some really great um, you know, chat services, probably the most secure chat service in the world at the moment. Uh, but the Venezuelan government held it up as this beacon, uh, you know. Does that mean that because I hate the Venezuelan government that they think they're destroying their people, that I'm, they're going to hate Zencash? Absolutely not. So I, I completely agree that there are huge marketing issues with Bitcoin Cash and I don't like what Roger is doing. I don't like that he's saying that Bitcoin is Bitcoin Cash is Bitcoin and, and obfuscating that. I think that's stupid and I talked to him about that in my interview. The flack that I noticed that I got from posting about the interview it didn't bring up any of those issues there. It was all that, you know, Bitcoin Cash is a scam, you know, and, and it's just like, I, I can understand how someone doesn't like the marketing techniques and think that that may be scammy. I can understand that they don't like Craig Wright. Um, and, but then to lump it all into one basket and say, we can't even discuss this coin. We can't, you know, discuss block sizes uh, because one person in the movement is uh, is really shitty, I think is is kind of crazy. And we need to move beyond that. I mean, you look at people who are first coming into this space, the biggest argument I hear is, oh, well, my friend's friend got scammed and they thought they were buying Bitcoin and and they actually bought Bitcoin cash and they lost money. And, and that's the main argument that I hear at the moment. But if you if that's honestly the truth, then 
doesn't having an interview where we talk these things out actually provide value to the community? Because you've got a whole bunch of new people entering the space. Where are they going to go? They're going to go to Bitcoin.com. So that is a very prominent website. Roger Ver doesn't need you know, any more exposure. And, and one interview isn't going to make a big amount of difference there because he's got a huge amount of exposure. So people if people are already getting scammed, scammed at the moment uh, by this website obfuscating the truth or, or misnaming things. And I think we need more people actually having interviews that that say, you know, what's going on? What is the difference between Bitcoin Bitcoin Cash? Uh, what is Roger Ver doing? You know, talking about that marketing of the two. Like, I think it's just so important to be discussing this and for people to be coming down hard saying, no, we shouldn't be giving this person airtime so you're a scam artist because you're doing that, I think completely misses the point. Right. I mean, like, uh, there's definitely some marketing issues over there and uh, everything. You know, I'm just thinking about going back again to censorship resistance and this question about running your own full node and like uh, the ability to do that. And it's just uh, one of those things where, you know, I mean, like, I think you're getting a lot of this pushback and everything is because people like myself who served in the army and I've seen people die and I've seen I've been in third world countries. I've been in Afghanistan. I've seen, I've seen terrible things at the hands of the way that the money is currently run. And whenever you see somebody like Roger come in and delay this advancement of some new technology that's actually going to give people more privacy and censorship resistance. It's something that you get a lot of pushback on from people like myself, who's not a large economic node or even a mining node, just a node. But I mean, like, uh, you know, I mean, this is where like the fighting comes from. And I, I understand like, you know, people want to test different implementations and there's all these things in currency wars. But the reality is like, we do have something that works that could help save lives. And like, if you delay that, then there's going to be some pushback, major. Well, but yeah, I'm, well, I mean, so you, to take up all your time. Yeah. I mean, to so your you, to your point, I mean, Roger would say the exact same thing, right? Like he. And but he, how's how's it but how's it being he, censorship he, resistant? He, I don't know. No, he he views you guys as delaying the the adoption of Bitcoin around the world, right? Now, whether or not he's correct on that, that's that's his view, right? Like he 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 wants to see Bitcoin adopted and the benefits of decentralization and censorship resistance and all of this reach as many people as possible and he's you know frustrated that what he kind of views by your vision as holding that back so it's not now so it's interesting because these are you feel the exact same way about roger right so it's it, we have like reverse views there but yeah, that's, 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 like, that's i enjoyed yeah. this conversation just to figure it out loud right right it's all a right so, goal. the question is, is which one is introducing a security flaw which one is resulting in delayed adoption so it right. comes down to that one. i have to cut in sorry jw and delay the conversation for a moment um naomi sadly has to run due to her busy schedule but uh it's sad you have to go but it was nice having you on and uh, yeah and i um I'm, I'm really grateful to be asked on so i was just so people know i was uh approached by these guys and asked if i wanted to come on as a show where it would be me against all of them talking about bitcoin cash uh just so that we're clear you know i'm not a huge proponent of bitcoin cash i just think it's a really interesting coin that deserves to be talked about. Um, and I don't think that it's like some scammy coin. So uh, hearing that there was this like, big group of people talking about this, I actually invited Chris on, who I think has just contributed a huge amount, I'm sure you'll all agree, to mm -hmm. this conversation just with his technical expertise. So thank you so much, Chris, for um, for coming on. And thank you, everyone, for, for having me. And I will I will be sure to keep updated. I'll come back uh, and watch the rest of this interview once I, once I have some time later on today. Mm -hmm. Really appreciate you coming on. It's really a great conversation. Yes. Yeah, thank you, Naomi. All right, see you. Take care, Naomi. Yeah, see you. All right, and Chris, uh, 
hopefully you can stick around for a little yeah, bit sure. and uh, just to remind you guys let's not try to dogpile them <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I i want to i want to talk about privacy a little yeah, bit go ahead. that's something that never comes up when when we're talking about block sizes and things like that by there is a huge argument there so let's first try to get into some common ground um first do you think uh, someone should be able to serve uh, to know about all your financial transactions that's that's the first question all your own uh, to yeah. to know about what you did and when oh to... somebody somebody else Yes, somebody um, else. No, no, no. I'm I'm probably completely with you guys. Where I'd like to see it be as as absolutely private as we could get it. Yeah, uh, yeah. That wasn't that was a rhetoric question of obvious answer. <laughs> okay. So, so why am I asking this? Um, the next question is: Do you think everyone should be able to run a full node? Um, I think that's an ideal. I don't know if that's a requirement for the security. You guys say it is. I, I think uh, if you ask me what's the difference in security between a network where people run full node, you know, you have 100,000 people running a full node on their home computer, like we mentioned, versus let's say a network with a million or so uh, small businesses, medium, large businesses running nodes and validating um, What's the difference in security between those two networks? I'm not sure if it's if it's significant. Um, now, would I like people to be able to always run a full node on their home computer? Certainly. And um, there's that that to the point where we get to a point where it's going to be a trade-off. I mentioned before, it's like we have no, 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 no don't yeah. don't go into that direction. Okay. We're talking about privacy. So okay. let me raise a little bit of question because. Yeah. Uh, my answer is no, not everyone should be able to run a full node, but maybe it would be a more obvious question if I ask, uh, should everyone run a full node? I would, Probably say, not. I would say no. no. Yep. Because, yeah, of course, there are a lot of resource requirements and, and my grandma should not set up a full node at home <laughs> with her non-existent internet. <laughs> With blockchain satellite, uh, anyway, a block stream satellite. Anyway, uh, my point is that, um, okay, another question How do you think blockchain info, blockchain info wallet, uh, showing you the balance of your wallet? Um, How do you query those balance? <sighs> I, I'm not 100% sure how they they do it. Oh, oh, how do they query the balance? Oh, they just they just ask the server. Here's my address. Yeah, yes. So so blockchain info knows all your addresses. Yep. Yep. And that's what it means to run a light node. So if you are well, there are other other ways to run a light node besides that, yes, right? In fact, some yes. some of you guys have done some really really good work on the BIP one. 57158 right with the compact uh, block filters um, for yes, light yes exactly I am going to that direction so wait for it <laughs> so, yeah. so the other thing what we had uh, was the bloom filtering SPV wallets yeah. which turned out to be a disaster that uh, that not only tells one third party your addresses but tells everyone who is 
crawling the bloom filters and looking at with some blockchain analysis so with with bloom filtering yeah. wallets all your addresses are connected together with blockchain uh spy companies yeah and, and I, I i probably yeah. know that more just about as much as anyone because i've written a lot of spv wild software that uses bloom filtering so i and I'm, I'm yeah me too actually yeah <laughs> yeah yeah so, so 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 the other thing is that this was the only two option half a year ago we didn't know about client side filtering stuff so half a year ago we were either running a full node or or give up our privacy you know this this was the question uh, and you know like for for privacy reasons if you don't want to lose all your privacy right away then you must run a full node at least that what is was and no one talks about it do, do you agree that is this a good enough reason to to not ruin the the full node uh um, kind of, kind of yes and no. So it's what what we're talking about. The privacy you get from a full node is the privacy over over the wire, right? When getting your transactions and whatnot from your yes, peers. Not privacy, um, yes. Yeah, it's not blockchain privacy. So there, those are two different concepts. So um, I, I think until we have a very solid solution for. Uh, I think we need to get to a really solid solution for blockchain privacy for this to to ultimately be as private as we would like it. I, I know it, in terms of like from from a, a present standpoint in terms of how the technology works, um, you know, having network level privacy is better than not having it. But we still want to have like that blockchain level privacy. And I don't know if we we really have the technology to do that today in a way that's kind of you know, I, I would say scalable. I mean, you guys, I mean, because you, the way you guys are, are <laughs> you want to keep the block size, you could probably do it at one megabyte and not have an issue. Um, but to do it and also um, be scalable, I don't know if we have the technology to do that today. I think we will get there at some point. And I don't know if it'll be Bitcoin or Bitcoin Cash might not be the ones to implement it, right? It might be some other coin um, that does so and um, and ends up taking off possibly, or maybe you know we we really nail it and we really get the the primitive the cryptographic primitives right and everything, and uh, you know then we have to figure out how the heck do we get this into Bitcoin or Bitcoin Cash right? So, but that that's I, I'm I'm optimistic there, but I'm I'm not sure that we have we fully have the technology today. Uh, that's just all right. Thanks, Janine would like to get in. Yeah, because um, I think one of the most important things in terms of adding privacy to Bitcoin is obviously avoiding, you know, the issue of, you know, because obviously a lot of the privacy solutions we have right now involve having larger signatures, putting more data into the blockchain. And um, I think part of it, it, the whole the whole debate last year was kind of weird for me because it was being it was being called the small block versus large block debate. And I think it would be more accurate or at least more productive to find out whether people are more focused on compression versus expansion of the block size. That seems like a bigger, that's, it seems like a more precise way of saying what the debate was actually about because I feel like what Bitcoin Cash ended up doing is they prioritized making the blocks bigger versus making the data, the transactions smaller. And in terms of privacy and also just for the longevity of Bitcoin in general, I think from my perspective, it would be better at this stage when 
you know, there are computers that can't handle block sizes that are that large, um, at least the ordinary full node. I think it would be more economical and make more sense, at least in the short term, to focus more on the compression side. And so that's why I think um, especially a lot of the developers who work on the Bitcoin Core client were focusing on stuff like that instead of more of the block the block size increases stuff. What do you think about? Do you does that make sense at all? Um, yeah, well, I, the way you described it, may I, I guess kind of makes sense. I would my view is like just kind of why not both? I mean, I guess the answer is just development resources, right? But um, but I mean, you can certainly have both um, where we can do things like uh, Schnorr signatures or MAST that um, can potentially result in less data going into the chain or at least less data per transaction um, going into the chain and still you know, work on op optimizations that can make the capacity work um, grow. Well, I think the answer from my perspective is you do the stuff that doesn't put censorship resistant money at risk of going away first. And then if you run out, then you go after that other stuff. So yeah, we, I mean, already agreed, there's a certain point where that block size becomes dangerous. Yeah. Some people have said it's four megs. Some people have said it's two. Some people have made a, a compelling case that we've already crossed that line. So I, I think we should at least acknowledge that it's questionable. And I don't think that if you walked into Facebook in year two and said, Hey, I've got an idea, guys, we're going to, uh, we're going to, we're going to mess with this critical security parameter and it's going to be okay. We think and it's going to let us double our user account. Like you'd just be laughed out of the room because we're not trying to get 32 uh, transactions per second. We're trying to get enough to be money. And that means that Visa is not even relevant, right? 7,000 transactions per second is not the mission of Bitcoin. It's to be money, which means we have to support at least hundreds of thousands, if not millions of transactions per second. Yeah, I agree. And to, to get to, we want to, to mess get, with something that could be dangerous. But we're to get there, we're going to need, we're going to need, massive changes right i mean you you don't think like lightning itself is going to handle world level transaction without changes do you do you i think lightning is going to get us up to millions of transactions per second which is an incredible increase millions per second with with a one megabyte block size yeah absolutely okay lightning also, like, yeah, we're gonna real have quick entry we're gonna get additional benefits on other things that are safe that you mentioned right like schnorr signatures and mast and other things that can get us more channels opened at a time you know there's other things that we can do but we should continue i mean i i know it sucks for open bazaar because you made a bet that we are going to be able to support an incredible number of transactions per second on the blockchain and that was a bad bet right it was a bad gamble for the company and i'm sorry that you guys made that but the reality is we couldn't have pulled that off. Like we I don't, technology I don't. just wouldn't have worked without messing with stuff that's security sensitive at the very Okay, real, real quick, I just want to jump in and yeah. I want to say like, Chris, like nobody reasonable at least is painting lightning as if it will solve all of the scalability problems. Like it, it is going to be a huge part of a piece that involves many other things like you know block stream and liquid like more things like that moving industrial activity into walled gardens oh i don't like dis things. disagree i think the um lightning can be very viable for like clearing between like custodial wallet companies and exchanges i think that's i think that to my understanding that's kind of like where elizabeth is like trying to make some money no, and, no, I, I mean, like lightning is going to scale for consumer payments, I believe. Okay, well, it's not that's the whole where piece. I'm, I'm skeptical. Like, we, we also have like, you know, if you've seen the Tangum banknote would allow 
like uh, a shit ton of volume to happen off chain in, in meat space without bloating the the network beyond the UTXO set. Like side chains take a lot of big industry use off of the chain. We still like Nopara said like they've they've stopped working on Tumblebit, but like that is still a concept to be explored or improved custodial things like a Xiaomi and eCash server. Like there are a whole slew of other pieces besides just Lightning Network to try to add more scalability for transactional purposes. Okay, um, but right, but this comes down to, you know, let, let's say that lightning proves to be, and this is a hypothetical, you guys don't think that it's, that this is likely, but what happens when lightning proves not to be sufficient for com commercial payments? Are we gonna default back to the custodial wallet model, right? Is And is that, is that something you guys would find acceptable where to actually, I mean, you can hold, you can hodl your Bitcoin. What's the in alternative? What's that? What is the alternative? To jack up the block size to what may be dangerous in my view and maybe isn't in Chris's view. Yeah. Oh, I see. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's the question. So, I mean, would you guys be happy with a network where, I, I um, wouldn't be happy with it, man. Nobody, nobody likes having a ton of money in Coinbase, but if, if uh, if Coinbase goes down, that's going to be bad. It's going to be bad for Bitcoin, but it's not going to be Bitcoin going down. So if I had to choose between like a centralized exchange being insecure and the whole freaking network, like frankly, we don't know if we could ever do this again, right? We're trying to build something that's government hard. Governments are now aware of it. It's really hard to bootstrap a POW uh, proof of work algorithm, right? And get to ASIC commoditization. This may be a one-shot thing. So if those are your choices, yeah, I say, you know, we'd have to we'd have to live with centralized exchanges a little longer until we can find something that isn't uh, a real big risk uh, to the the only protocol that we may ever have. Yeah, I, I mean, again, I mean, we keep we keep repeating ourselves where we say we just disagree where the risk is. Like, I would I would say like where we are in Bitcoin Cash at thirty two megabytes is like no risk at all. I mean, in my opinion, but well, I mean, like just kind of going back to my. Like you can just throw that into the trash. Yeah, actually, we're streaming the show right now into those two thirty-two megabytes. So I guess we're gonna find oh, out. No. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Come on, we had to make one joke at least. Come on. All right, come on. Let's let's wind back and like let's let's get to the issue. Is like you know, lightning. I think will work for a long time with consumer payments. I think that the, the constraint there, once everything being worked on, is simply the block size and how efficiently it's used. I think like I see dozens of things that could extend that to a time horizon of like five, 10 years. And in that whole time, we are going to continue working on like actually streamlining or as Janine said, compressing how data is handled on the main chain. And in the meantime, there's also going to be other things like liquid that take big institutional uses out into these like multi-party smart contracts, which is pretty much what a federated sidechain is and pulling that off. Like people will be doing things like these Tangum banknotes. So any kind of meat space activity can transition over to not even interacting with the chain at all. And then you're still like looking at the potential of something like a Xiaomi and eCash server plugging on top of the Lightning Network and a very heavily mitigated custodial thing filling in gaps there. I mean, like you, you asked me if I, if like, or you asked us if we would have any problems with centralized institutions. 
knowing that there's going to be continued progress on decentralized alternatives, I would have no problems with something that is custodial or centralized if I could do something like plug a lightning channel into it or route over to it through the lightning and get in and out of that at the snap of a finger. I mean, like right now, most of my usage is sending decent chunks of money to Coinbase and using my shift card. Like as long as the, the majority of my wealth can be secured on, a, on the chain that I can validate, I'm okay with those trade-offs because I don't think those trade-offs are going to be permanent. Like, I think that like the, the amount of primitives we're looking at to work with are nothing compared to what could be in the long term. I mean, things well, like zero knowledge proofs, for instance, like could wind up being in five or 10 years, something that rec like reconciles all of this, that leaves literally the only thing as a point of contention with the block size is being the economics of minor incentives. I mean, that well, could happen. So it's very interesting that you mentioned this five to 10 year time horizon, because that's kind of like... I view it almost exactly the same way that you did that like in five to 10 years, I feel like there's a good, really good chance that we'll have cracked this nut and that could be zero knowledge proofs. Like, I don't know if you saw, like, I think it was like Zcash team, they're investing in a company that I think is exploring, exploring Starks for like blockchain usage and stuff like this, like research. I, I mean, there's stuff that's really interesting. Like imagine being able to sync a full node with just, you know, but just by downloading, you know, a small like kilobyte of data and you, you're noticed and it's like a second later you're noticing. I mean, there's, um, I mean, it, it's kind of like there, there's solutions out there that are at least theoretically possible. Sharding is another one that's like potentially theoretically possible um, that could solve this. And I'm, 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 if I were, you know, placing bets, I'd say, I think in five to 10 years, um, you know, we'll have solved the scalability issue for good. Now, it, the question is like, you know, can, you know, you know, wh where, wh where will we be in five to 10 years? Like, you know, let's, let's ask, where will Bitcoin cash be in five to 10 years? I don't think we're going to be at a point where I, you know, I, I mentioned we're going to eventually we hit a trade-off where we have to, where I think we have to start making trade-offs between security and scale. I don't think we're going to be there in five to 10 years. Right. Um, now we will, if like, we just have exponential growth, I'm, I'm a little bit, maybe a little less pessimistic, more pessimistic on, you know, the, the notion that we're going to have this exponential growth than other people are. But I think there's a good chance that, you know, we can make it to that point where we see these technological innovations come down the pike before ever hitting that, that trade-off. So, I mean, that's, that's, I mean, we're, we're very similar in terms of our views where we're kind of looking out this five to 10 year time horizon. It's just, I'm, I'm looking at it as I don't think we're going to, in that five to 10 year time horizon, we're going to have to make any kind of significant trade-off between um, security and scalability. Well, I mean, like, I think we already have. And I mean, like, from my point of view, it's the difference between a gamble and a certainty that well, can the network I, will Shelby, be. Can I like, just ask a couple of questions? Because we, we have said this a couple of times and I have a couple of data points that I wanted to ask Chris. How many transactions per second do you think that we'll have to support in the next uh, five years? Like five years from now, how many transactions per second do you think we'll need to be able to rock safely? Um. <laughs> Hold on, let me pull up a, a chart. Give me one second. Um, I'm gonna get a couple thousand. No, I, I I just I wrote a little article on on and I just made up a small little chart of like what happens if transaction volume doubles every single year. So in five years, two, three, four, five. I had 
26 transactions per second. And that's that's starting with half a megabyte block. So that's like nothing. That's in, that's in five years. That would not support three McDonald's. It certainly wouldn't support the whole chain, right? Like well, maybe my estimates but, but I'm, there. Yeah, but, but I'm, we're I'm, talking I'm, about like one franchise adopts it. If, if Amazon.com adopted Bitcoin, but I mean, I'm assuming doubling every single year. Like, I mean, that's no, all. That's not like, how exponential. That's not how Facebook grew. That's not how any exponential network grows. No, but I mean, we're talking it's squared, not we're talking, double. We're talking this bizarre new money that like is so different than um, you know everyone's used to. I mean, you can think like, okay, we're going to have faster growth than that. I just said, I think, I think we're realistically the growth is probably going to be slower. And I think doubling every single year, um, which is kind of what Bitcoin was doing up until. Uh, about uh, 2015. So I'm just kind of 2016 or whatever. I'm just continuing the trend, right? So you, don't, you don't think that you guys could do, um, you don't, you don't think you need to do something like gigabit blocks, even 32 megabit blocks. You get, in theory, Bitcoin cash already supports way more transactions per second than you think that we're going to need in five years. Doesn't yeah. that seem like a bad security trade-off? Like, no, because I, I think like support way more than we think we will need in five years. And we're not sure how big is safe enough. Well, I'm, I'm pretty sure that 32 is safe, but, but um, yeah, so I, I, don't, I don't know how to say that, but yeah, I mean, I, it is more than I think we're going to need to support in five years. Okay. Re really quick though. It's like, you know, to kind of go back to like bridging the gap is like with, with the kind of potential scaling solutions, like coming down the pipeline, like that still does not mean that we can just infinitely bloat the block size because we, we still need that predictability in mining revenue and income to keep the mining incentives stabilized. So even in that like world, we, we can't just go straight to like gigablocks or terablocks. Like you still need some kind of limitation to provide that pressure for the economic aspect of mining incentives. And so like one, I don't think just cranking the lever up until we see whether these technologies play out is smart. And two, like for all we know, they might not. Like somebody comes along from MIT, finds some fundamental flaw in something, and then what you were banking on to keep the network viable in the long term didn't work out. And now you've increased all the operational costs, already gone to the point of closing out a large number of participants. And ultimately, like, I think that is a very foolish thing. Like in, in my mind, people who try to predict the future with certainty are being foolish. Like we should be designing Bitcoin to continue running if World War III breaks out. If we start seeing nation states collapse and everything just falls to pieces in terms of infrastructure, like it should be able to survive the absolute worst turn the world could take in the next few decades. And like cranking that lever up and making assumptions on things working out is, is not a viable plan in my mind. Well, I, you know, I, I, I a lot is similar to what you just said. Um, I know it was like, you know, Giacomo, you guys probably read his like tweet storm that he replied to me. And one of the things that he, he said was like, similar to what you said was like, Bitcoin needs to be survived. It needs to be able to survive governments um, like becoming hostile to it. And I agree, but I, I think, I, I think like if, if governments came out tomorrow and said, Bitcoin's now illegal, I that's so much of like a death blow to Bitcoin, right? I mean, it survives technically. 
but the price tanks down to like 10 bucks, you know, or, or less. It's, it's the only trade and exchange that's going to be taking place is like extreme black market stuff. Um, that's almost like absolute worst case scenario. I mean, yeah, technically it survives that, but it survives in this horrifically like crippled form where I think the alternate approach is kind of like, it's sort of, I would almost say like the Uber strategy. It's you get, you grow big enough, fast enough that by the time governments realize what happened, the public opinion's already on your side and they can't ban it. Right. But see, like, that's like I, I think you kind of misunderstood the the point I was trying to make. Uh, like I, I'm speaking not like governments trying to crack down on it. Like let's let's say literally Northern Africa and Southern Europe blows up into World War Three. Like we start seeing internet infrastructure like destroyed for whatever purpose. We like literally like everything starts falling apart in terms of the assumptions of infrastructure this all has to build on. Like I like that Blockstream satellite link, like that's a centralized thing now, but I want to see more people doing that. Or like the, the radio relay work that Nick Zabo is working on. And it's like, you cannot have these kinds of things once you start pushing past certain thresholds. And I mean, it's like, as far as like governments attacking it outright, I don't think that'll ever happen in a unified way. Like America might clamp down and make it illegal, but South Korea and Japan are going full swing into Bitcoin. Like there will be jurisdictions where those markets can maintain the liquidity. It's just a matter of can participants in non-friendly jurisdictions still interact with it? Can they still run that infrastructure without catching attention or, or getting caught? Um, yeah, um, I mean, it's certainly our hope this, that it never gets banned. But like, I think a good strategy to make sure that you that you don't get to that point is to you know, get as get as many people using it as possible so that by the time the governments wake up to what happened, you know, that they, they have a really strongly public opinion is very strongly in favor and uh, and it's going to be hard. We might have passed that threshold already. I don't know, um, but I hope we have. But we'll see. I, I don't disagree with that, but it's like I want to go a step further. Like I want that infrastructure nimble enough that that domino can start falling and countries or places that would otherwise fold to the political pressure of other bigger entities because that infrastructure is nimble enough can just go no because you can't lock us out of it we're going to continue supporting that and that puts us on an even stronger footing as far as like you know public opinion actually supporting things like places where that is the case can dig in and refuse to cave to places where it's not Right. And that's where I just wanted to kind of go back to like the whole thing of like, I know me and Roger probably would have arguments about the same thing of trying to get censorship resistant money to people. And, you know, it's just like I'm, we were talking about the block size and everything like that. I mean, that's where it's like I see like your exponential growth and your Uber example is just a great example of a centralized system right now. Uber has got drivers all over the place that they have no control over. Somebody tried to kidnap somebody on the way to the Denver airport earlier and uh they were an uber driver and uber said whoops we're sorry and uh you know it's just like a couple of people up there at the top with uh, all the money and they can't really get it down to the people down there they're having to do all these high interest loans to, in order to get their cars and their vehicles and a similar situation would be like people in these third world countries and they need the you know that small amount of bandwidth in order to be able to get those transactions in and out and uh you know i i mean like i can i guess i could see that you know that's not exactly the model that y'all think would work 
But, uh, you know, I mean, like in that model with Uber, I mean, we can see the problems already appearing again. And we see that time and time again when things just grow straight up like that. Mm -hmm. So I guess, um, I don't know, it's I, I said earlier, we kind of discussed the social aspect of things and we haven't really touched on that. Um, I don't know. I, I feel like we plumbed through a lot of the technicals. You guys kind of want to maybe move on to that and try to not keep Chris too long. I don't know. I, I almost feel like we, we covered the social stuff just by not being jerks to each other for the last hour. <laughs> well, I mean, but that, that's kind of the, like what I wanted to touch on is like the dynamic where you have a lot of people. And I mean, obviously I'm going to argue that it happens more on the Bitcoin cash side, but like it is people on both sides that just get kind of manipulative and like outright lie about things. And it's like, that's really personally my biggest problem with Bitcoin cash. Like, I, I don't care that somebody's forked this network off, decided to go a different route. It's kind of the way that the community engages. And, you know, a lot of what Naomi was talking about with Roger and like Bitcoin.com and their advertising. I mean, like you literally have Roger out there not just saying that he thinks Bitcoin Cash is more in line with Satoshi's vision, but actually on his website representing Bitcoin Cash with the Bitcoin BTC ticker trying to lead people into buying Bitcoin cash. And I mean, you have like people like David shares on um, the Bitcoin.com. Like, uh, you know, this, this, this kind of directly involves me, but like back during the whole 2X movement, I was memeing a lot. <laughs> and I made a meme kind of comparing Segwit2X to the Samsung Note 7. You know, like it's boom, it's going to blow up and be a huge PR disaster. And I, I'm not sure if it was David originally, but somebody took that to RBTC because Samson Mao retweeted it and started accusing him of issuing death threats to Jeff Garzik because a, a car bomb was, was what they took away from a picture of a Jeep in Florida that was literally lit on fire by the Samsung. Because again, I'm, I'm kind of just like making a joke of the whole New York agreement. And David shares literally not two days ago Despite me going on a whole Twitter thread, angrily clarifying this, like going into the thread, clarifying this is continuing to push this lie that like Samson Mao threatened to kill Jeff Garzik. And it's just like that degree of just outright deceitfulness. Like it, one, it, it kind of really pisses me off personally. And two, like I would like to see more people on the other side of the fence calling things out like I mean, right. that's like well, I, I mean, I, I certainly ag agree, but I will say you, you can't think it's only limited to, to the Bitcoin cash side, right? I mean, because I no, get, no, not I get at all, enormous like, amounts of vitriol on my Twitter, like regularly, and and we see all kinds of, of shenanigans. Um, well, see, the, the vitriol I get. I, I have like, to make I'm a, not I saying make a it's one real, real quick, Jay. I, I like, do occasionally walk around San Francisco looking for the Bitcoin cash logo and. <laughs> you know, late at night. So I, I, I'm as guilty as anybody. Real quick though, I want to clarify is like, I'm not saying it's like one-sided at all, yeah, yeah. but uh, like I do. And I'm not speaking so much about just the vitriol. It's like actually lying, like not having a disagreement over something, but just outright lying. 
And yeah. like, that's what really bothers me about this because that kind of sticks the wedge in, which makes these kinds of conversations, like actual civil discussions, like so hard to have. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, uh, you know, if, if both of our sides, you know, could, could get away from that or agree not to do that, it would be great. And I do agree with, um, you know, the sentiment on like R Roger's marketing of Bitcoin. I'm, I mean, I'm certainly not a fan of how he markets it. I mean, I don't think that Bitcoin Cash needs to be marketed as Bitcoin in order to do well. I guess Roger kind of feels differently, but um, maybe because he, he owns the Bitcoin.com domain. I don't know, but um, it's his baby, man. <laughs> but but uh, but yeah, I mean, I I I think it it can do fine if they just market it as Bitcoin Cash and as a fork and and whatever. Um, but I, you know, there there definitely is some some marketing challenges that you guys mentioned on you know between that and then you know Craig Wright is like a marketing disaster. <laughs> do you guys actually divide divided by by Craig Wright? Is is the Bitcoin BCH community divided by Craig Wright? Oh yeah. Um, I, I, the, I, in my opinion, I think the majority of people uh, are not not happy with that. The, the issue is that I could be candid. They have a lot of money, right? Like, I mean, I think uh, what's his name? Calvin Air is a billionaire. I, I mean, who knows how much Craig Wright has? And so it's like there's there's a lot of pool when when people have a lot of money to throw around. Like you don't you don't want to offend someone who could potentially be paying your bills. And so it's it's one of those those. It's a difficult situation for sure. And I mean, I know some people like Peter Risen, for example, has you know, taking a really strong stance against um, Craig Wright and they pulled their funding from from Bitcoin Unlimited. And, you know, Peter Risen said, oh, well, you know, if you're going to, I'm not going to be, you know, I'm not going to like cowtail to a particular concept or whatever because or say something that I don't believe because you're paying me. So, I mean, there are some, uh, it, it's it's tough, right? Yeah, and I think probably the, the reason why there's so much vitriol is because, you know, this is a global phenomenon. And so you don't really have, uh, unless people are going to local meetups, they don't really have as much time to spend in person talking to people. And I've noticed that in person, people are far more civil. I think that's just, that's the, a common thing, you know, oh, absolutely, are, yeah. they're nicer, they're nicer in person. Like not even, I think except, it also, <laughs> Maybe, but um, I, it was just something interesting that happened in a meetup that I went to recently where um, there was, uh, in this meetup, there was actually only one guy who's supporting Bitcoin Cash and they had two votes um, at this meetup. And one, the first one was, uh, should we make a statement saying we're not going to do anything supporting Bitcoin Cash? And actually the majority of people, even though there was only one person saying they were in support of Bitcoin Cash, the majority of people at the meetup said, no, we're not going to ban it outright. When it came to a question of should the meetup be accepting multiple coins, including Bitcoin Cash, should they diversify? Pretty much everyone said, no, we do not want to accept Bitcoin Cash. And it was just an interesting, you know, that that's why I think like the claims about censorship are very limited. They're limited mostly to, you know, who controls the big Bitcoin websites. Like that's the biggest concern. But when it actually comes to in-person conversations, I don't think that's really a strong element at play. Yeah, I, I completely agree. If people were as polite on the Internet as they were in person, we'd all be a lot better off. It'd definitely be a nicer internet. Yeah. It's, it's just that feedback loop. You know, like people 
get caught into something in the public eye and then there's always that aspect i need to dig in and defend it <laughs> i got an idea let's censor people let's censor people who are not nice to each other on the internet <laughs> You will censor well, the entire internet. Yes. <laughs> speaking of another, speaking of another person who I think is actually worse in person than he is online, which would be Craig Wright, and like that was that was really the whole reason that I asked that question of Naomi because, like, yes, I don't think that you know just because a really wealthy proponent of a certain tool, uh, being a jerk, I don't think that should necessarily say that then the technology is not worth anything. But I definitely think it is still a problem for that technology, obviously, because people will associate this new brand, Bitcoin Cash or Bitcoin Cash trying to be Bitcoin, they'll associate it with these two people. And so, you know, even if people are more favorable towards Roger, they still have the problem that he is supporting Craig as an extension. And so, you know, that I think that's a really big problem. And I think I don't know what Roger's reason is for supporting Craig, because I feel like you know, he has backed down on some of the wrong things that he's said about SegWit over the last two years. Uh, so he's not completely oblivious to technical arguments when they're said to him in an understandable way. Um, but I'm just wondering why he's holding on to Craig Wright for so long, because well, I mean, real quickly, it's damaging him in the long run. Something I kind of wanted to point out real quick that I, I feel it's just like it's been completely lost to the internet. But like, the the origin of like the entire term bcash like that did not like start as some derogatory dig like that 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 literally was like a, an olive branch that it's like here's a name that's it's not a bad name in its own right that would distinguish it from bitcoin in a way to not confuse users and then like kind of like good luck and it, it was immediately just kind of hit back with like the no we're bitcoin like you forked and like all that nonsense and then it kind of just evolved into this like dig at everybody but it was like from the from the very beginning like that was an attempt to be like you know here here's like a, an attempt at an identity suggestion and like well, what, what, what would have been the problem i mean i understand you have a problem with like roger calling bitcoin cash as bitcoin but what would have been the problem with just you know, accepting the name Bitcoin Cash that like the community chose rather than saying, well, here's an alternative name that we like better. Well, I mean, regardless, I don't think it would have mattered. It's just the fact that it's like, instead of like making that a clean break with its own identity and like its own basis to, to kind of move forward with, like even just suggesting it was just immediately spat back as like, no, we're Bitcoin, like regardless of like what the actual title was you know and just like uh you know real quick was like i just just when, whenever this whole thing was happening the fork was all happening there was a lot of discussion where we were talking bitcoin and bitcoin cash and it just got real awkward to keep, keep saying like bitcoin then bitcoin cash in the same sentence it just it got to where it felt like sentences every sentence had two bitcoins in it and it just like uh it just seemed like a natural verbiage of people to be like well you know bcash and then like yeah i can understand it's like uh you know people got upset about it but i mean like i can also understand it was like conversations were not easy when you're trying to talk like that and you need something to vary it to like no differentiate like this is what we're talking about here and i mean like because if you just kept saying like oh well, you know there's bitcoin and bitcoin cash it's like people just they did they get like they got confused and like uh, a lot of the discussion kind of just got wrapped up in just every sentence had two bitcoins in it 
Well, I, I mean, I can tell you, I, I think what is kind of like at least a little bit of the community perspective. I, I don't know, maybe this is some of the frustration on the side of the, the community, but like, so, I mean, you, you see with Bitcoin Cash, what I think a lot of the people wanted as like an ideal, right? It was we've got 32 megabyte blocks and no segue. Um, and, you know, we were willing to compromise or the, the community was willing to compromise like all the way down to we'll do two megabyte blocks and SegWit. Okay, it's a huge compromise to go from 32 and no SegWit down to two and, and SegWit in order to keep the community together and keep the the chain from splitting. And like the response from, you know, the core side was basically like, well, here, here's the compromise offer. You guys give us everything we want and we'll give you nothing you want. Okay, and so it's like, I mean, at that point, I mean, it's obvious that the only thing left to do is kind of fork the chain. And so what it seemed like we got from like, what it seemed like what the core developers or not necessarily developers, but supporter the community wanted was like, get 100% of, of what you guys wanted, get nothing that you didn't want and have no fork, okay? Well, I mean, it wasn't gonna be, it was gonna be one or the other, it wasn't gonna be both. And so the fork happened and now it's kind of like, it seems like there's this attempt to kind of say, no, we got we got 100% of everything we wanted, that we got we got everything we wanted, nothing we didn't want, and you know, Bitcoin Cash is just some random unrelated altcoin trying to take the Bitcoin name. And so there was never really any any fork as a result of this. And I think that's where like a lot of the frustration comes in is there's like this almost a little bit of like a, a I don't know, brand battle or like trying to kind of pretend like this whole history didn't happen where I think uh, people, and so if anything, I mean, I certainly agree that like this pushback of like Bitcoin Cash is the real Bitcoin and all this, I think that's born out of that frustration. I think people would have been more comfortable with um, just the Bitcoin Cash name by itself um, if it wasn't for, you know, this kind of perceived like, you know, it's unrelated to Bitcoin type thing. Well, I mean, real real quick, like I, I got, I need to stop saying that because I know I'm not going to be real quick. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> like, kind of from like the other side of that, it's like from my perspective, the entire New York agreement, like it didn't really feel like that we're at a compromise here. I mean, like Segwit had consensus aside from arguments which were complete nonsense. I mean, like you had people saying it destroyed the chain of signatures when it's just committing to it differently. Like they're still there. Like you had Craig Wright literally like making up this insane nonsense about SegWit being illegal because it stripped the signature from a legal contract. And it was like, you know, like th there were no counter arguments to SegWit except ones that were completely nonsensical and not rooted in technical arguments. So like personally, I would consider that consensus, especially in that people who didn't want to use it wouldn't have to use it. Miners who didn't want to mine it didn't have to mine it. Like it's opt-in the whole way through the stack. And then like they tried to take this bogus like argument against it as a basis to shoehorn in something that didn't have consensus, the block size limit. And so I get like, yeah, after that, like they're, they're going to fork, like they want to go do something else. Yeah, but I think like I mean, how was, the market played out. 
Yeah. So people did make really bad arguments against SegWit, but I don't think it's quite the way you're portraying it that like the that was the only reason people were supporting it were those bad arguments you just mentioned. I mean, from my perspective No, I, I don't mean supporting Bcash just because of that. I mean like the arguments against SegWit. Well, I mean, my, my view on SegWit was, I, you know, I wasn't opposed to what it was trying to accomplish. I think it's useful to be able to build, you know, contracts that, you know, you, you can chain them together in, in, in you know, previously signed transaction. Um, but, I, you know, I, I didn't, I, I thought the, the actual design of it as a soft fork was way too ugly of a protocol design, my, for my taste. I, you know, I asked, in fact, I was on the very first thread kind of announcing it, it where they announced it. And I'm like, why are you, you have consensus? Why not do it as a hard fork? Like there's, there's no one opposing it. There's, and it was just, well, we can do it. We can do it as a soft fork. So we're doing it as a soft fork. And I just thought like the result was just, I didn't like, I didn't like it. Right. It was, it just wasn't my own personal taste. And so that, and, and as with a number of other people with like, the the code design and how like now we have like I don't know two di two different address types we've got uh, you know two different transaction formats it's just I don't know but, but I mean like so it's like, kind of like to... designed like that like I mean the entire system with the unused opcodes was explicitly designed to be able to soft fork in like new transaction types new opcodes and I mean like this, well not this not with the anyone can pay right like that wasn't yeah. That was well, just, no, but that anyone can pay is just op true. It's just an Shinobi undefined Chris op code. Is completely right in this regard. Mm -hmm. That look, look at what happened now. We have three kind, two, two new scripts. What's very, very often used: batch thirty two and pay to script hash over pay to witness. Yeah, but I mean uh, the consensus and, like and wasn't there. The like Bitcoin Core does not like put things into yes, their client that, that don't that, have consensus and a hard yes. fork did not have consensus that's what i want you don't you don't say. think it would i mean it just seemed that's, that the only people it seemed to me who it didn't have consensus from was just not people who were opposing segwit but people who are saying well we can do it as a software right um is, but it wasn't like there wasn't consensus around segwit i mean there pretty much was it was not consensus around it as a software no, but I mean, like a hard fork in general, like there was no consensus for it. Like, I mean, in my mind, unless it's hard fork or Bitcoin breaks, I am not supporting any hard fork that increases the operational cost of nodes. Like, well, that, that, would, not, that, that would not fork. Have, right? It can be standard and stuff like that. You, you can really... Um, tweak some things like it's standard then the nodes doesn't propagate and things like that you can you can do things but people wasn't even trying and yeah i like you can I, I, I agree but it's that, it's the you know. it's more to me about like the precedent like it's if you establish some kind of closed off social mechanism that can push through a hard fork then that creates a slippery slope and not not in the fallacy sense in the sense that you are creating a feedback loop where something has happened increasing the likelihood of it happening again and i am not comfortable with any kind of like formal body or group being able to do that like 2x fighting that to me was was setting the precedent that companies cannot just unilaterally redefine the protocol but that's, I mean, effectively what was going on with Segway, because it wasn't just, 
I mean, you say it's like just people who make bad arguments, maybe just for the benefit of viewers. You know, Amari, who's, you know, the, the lead dev for, for ABC, um, he wrote an article on his website called just called SegWit is not great, where, I mean, he, he doesn't make any of the, the arguments that you mentioned, right? Um, and so people could read that if they'd like. And it was, you know, there was a solid, I don't know, what, 30, 30%, 25% of the community, maybe more, I don't know, that that was opposing it. And so it seems like you're kind of like, well, we had consensus among 70% of the community, so we'll just consider that to be consensus. So, I mean, it's, I mean, it is what it is now. I mean, it's, it's, it's. Well, I mean, again, but that comes in the context of like the entire stack is totally opt-in at every level. Like we are not imposing any kind of change on anybody, like in order to deal with those in or increased resource costs, in order to deal with any of these new features, you have to choose to. And that was the stark difference for me, is like you a hard fork, like I have, th there's no choice. Like I can't wait, ease into, it's like, no, I have to make a choice. Well, I mean, you can do, um, you know, you're leaving a lot of metadata, these opt-in things like opt-in RBF and things like that. And, and, yeah, and, and I get that, but consensus is more important to me than, than perfection. Like, you know, let's do what we can and what there is consensus for and not obsess over doing everything absolutely perfect. Yeah. And uh, I mean, by the way, I said, oh, shoot, I, you know what? I got to plug my laptop in before it crashes. But I said, um, you know, I, I I was not in favor of SegWit, but I did support it, you know, as part of like, a, you know, a compromise plan. And, um, you know, it, it wasn't it was something like, you know, I was willing to say like, OK, you know, it might not be my my total preference, but, um, you know, it's something that I, I can do. You know, I would have preferred it to be done differently. Um, but I, I don't know where I was going with that, but yeah, it's just, um, it, it, it pe people, it, you know, I, I don't think they had a genuine consensus around doing SegWit as that software. Oh, and the, to your other point where you mentioned like the opt-in, you can do softworks where it's not opt-in, where it's like, you know, they, they miners just orphan the extension, you know, they just take the extension block and orphan everything else too. And that's done as a soft fork too. So it's kind of like one of those soft hard forks, which is technically still a soft fork, but you get. Yeah, and um, I, I wouldn't support things like that. Like, I think that that is like just as bad as a hard fork in terms of damaging the, the way this protocol functions and is upgraded. Well, I mean, like, uh, you know, I guess, uh, you know, really we're, we're buttoning up over two hours right now and we've been going for a long time and I know that we can keep going for really hours if we had coffee and we were sitting around the table. It's really been an enjoyable discussion and like just yeah, kind of yeah. getting like pictures on either side and seeing what we're uh, talking and thinking about. It's really, a, you know, a fresh thing, like we were saying, stepping out of Twitter and like kind of getting in person and talking. I really appreciate you coming on, Chris, and, uh, you know, helping us just sort of like talk it out, you know, it's a, uh, it's one of those things where if we don't talk and figure out what we're thinking, then, you know, we'll just be mad at each other forever. So yeah. it's very important stuff. And I really appreciate you coming on. Today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was pretty enjoyable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you want to take the, the last word, you know, if you've got anything else you want to clarify or say, you know, go ahead. Um, no, I was going to ask JW with his Chewbacca 
um, logo if he watched the solo movie, but he signed off. So uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I'm going to bet his reaction so is the same as mine. Um, it's why was that abortion made? Please take it away and stop <laughs> killing Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I think he'd be happy to see a Wookiee anywhere. So he probably said he saw it. Yeah. Someone called me Jan Solo a few weeks ago. <laughs> there you go. I, I went cruising by the movie theater yesterday and I saw that movie there and I was just looking. It's like, I don't, you know, there's been like four Star Wars since I saw the, the last Star Wars I saw. I don't even know where it's at anymore. So. <laughs> All right, guys. Yeah, I mean, it was real nice having you, uh, you yeah. and I only on, Chris. I mean, it's like this really was a breath of fresh air compared to the, the sock puffing back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. So hopefully we can do it again sometime. And I yeah. Guess, uh, you know, hope everybody enjoyed watching. Do you yeah. guys, do you guys publish this after the fact, or is it just strictly live? No, it's it's going to be up on the channel live. Uh, if you okay. want to like retweet it out so people can watch, it'll be up there. Okay. Cool. Hey, uh, quick final thought, everybody. It's Memorial Day weekend. Get out there and do something, man. It's a fun. It's going to be a fun weekend, right? It's first, like, uh, I don't know, first weekend feeling like summer around here. So get out and do something. Mm-hmm. All right. Toodaloo, everybody. All right. Take it easy. Bye, everyone. Bye.